Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven, white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. Most financial services companies above a certain size have one or more financial investigations units, FIUs, and special investigations units, SIUs, to investigate various threats against the institution or its customers. The missions vary from those that are somewhat narrowly focused on risks such as card fraud and elder financial fraud to those focused broadly on both insider and external threats against the institution and its customers. While BSA and AML and sanctions units command a great deal of regulatory attention, FIUs have the same suspicious activity report filing obligations as their AML and sanctions counterparts. As a reminder, it's mandatory to file a suspicious activity when there are suspected frauds involving insiders in any amount of money, known persons suspected of crimes of 5,000 or more, unknown persons suspected of crimes of 25,000 or more, and transactions totaling 5,000 or more that may involve money laundering or other illegal activity, or the transactional activity is designed to evade the BSA or has no business or apparent lawful purpose. So joining us today are three experts on financial crime and investigations within financial institutions. Alan Love from TD Bank, Alexandra Alex Cigaro from Raymond James, and FTI's own Andrew Rossini. Alan is currently an executive vice president and head of fraud risk management and global security and investigations at TD Bank. He was previously co-chief AML officer. And before joining TD Bank 10 years ago, he held AML regulatory positions at Depository Trust Clearing Corporation, GE Commercial Finance, PayPal, was a director in KPMG's forensic practice where I met him, and served for eight and a half years as an internal revenue service special agent. Alex is currently the director for enterprise fraud risk management at Raymond James Financial. She previously worked for 17 and a half years in local and state law enforcement in Florida. Uh, Andrew Rossini is a senior managing director and leader of the global risk and investigations practice at FCI Consulting, where he leads complex long-term conservatorships, receiverships, and monitorships for law enforcement and regulatory agencies, as well as special investigations for boards of directors and management. Uh, these typically involve issues surrounding compliance with the Bank Secrecy Act, and other anti-money laundering provisions, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, Sanctions Programs, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So let's start with the basics. Andrew, what's a suspicious activity report, and how does the process work, and what happens to them after they are sent to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network of Treasury? Thanks, Scott, and thanks, everyone, for joining, and, and thanks for uh, starting me off with a uh, easy question. So I'll just give a concise summary here. You know, the Bank Secrecy Act, along with a variety of rules and regulations require financial institutions to assist U.S. government agencies in detecting and preventing money laundering. And one of the primary mechanisms to do that is the suspicious activity report. I think Scott alluded to this, but you know, when we talk about financial institutions, there's a variety there. It's not just the traditional depository bank or credit union, but there are broker dealers, casinos, money service businesses, and a variety of other institutions that have to comply with these rules. These institutions through the suspicious activity report are really what we call the SAR, have to file these reports on transaction activity and other activities within the institution when they believe it signals criminal activity. And that can be money laundering, tax evasion, increased to include cyber incidents. And so there's a variety of activity 
that an institution must monitor and investigate um, at any one time. The SAR itself will contain really important information for law enforcement and, and other government agencies, including institutional and individual parties involved in a transaction, volumes and amounts of, of the activity, patterns, and, and some real basic information like names and addresses uh, and other things that uh, law enforcement and, and other government agencies will use in their in their investigations. Just, you know, mechanically, the institutions required to file typically within 30 days of initially identifying such activity, uh, and they will file through an online system managed and monitored by FinSAC. So that covers an individual report, you know, which in and of itself is critically important to the U.S. agencies investigating criminal activity. Further to that, when the individual reports get combined with other data collected by law enforcement and intelligence communities, it really helps to connect the dots in a government investigation. It can provide really a more complete picture in the identification of, of subjects perpetrating criminal activity. It can help identify patterns, associates, and a variety of communication methods that, uh, that you know, fraudsters and other criminals use um, to, to, to undertake their business. The other important thing about the collection of, of SARS is that FinCEN also releases key SAR stats. So it's analysis on certain information that it provides to the public, and it, and it provides interesting information like geographic concentrations, institutional institution types, and time series of shifts and volumes of, of suspicious activity. So, you know, institutions and trade groups and other interested parties can take that information, they can analyze it, and they can feed that back into it, um, the institution's um, and they can analyze further the, the activity that processes through the institution. I think it's safe to say here that there are countless examples of you know, terrorist acts prevented, sex trafficking rings broken, and white collar frauds that are exposed when the, you know, through the collection and usage of the SAR data. So, so it's really a paramount. So financial investigations units are really not well understood. Alan and then Alex, how do you explain to colleagues and senior executives what you do, what the uh, mission of the FIU is, and, and why it's important? Thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for everyone who's, who's joined call. As it relates to explaining the mission and what these units do from a fraud and AML perspective, I think it, 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 it takes some time to really sit down and have that dialogue with people. I know I'm constantly explaining to my wife and children what I do. Uh, it seems I have to do that every year. I think as far as the communicating it to your board, I think your senior executives, as well as throughout the organization, requires a communication. It requires a, a program in which you get out and you sit down and you meet with those senior leaders and you provide them updates because it's important that they understand the role that you play in the organization. And the more information they have, the better it is. So through constant dialogue, whether that's meeting with a committee of the board, uh, whether that's presenting to an executive committee within the organization. And I would say even setting up time to meet with, I would say, those business leaders or those second line functions, those 1B functions within the business, sitting down and explaining to them what it is that you do and how you're going to assist the organization with their mission. I think it's important that they understand that you're not there to say no. Uh, and I think sometimes people think that, but you're really there to protect the organization and really evaluate the controls that are in place and make sure that they are proper. They can address the risks that the organization will face. So it's through constant communications, getting out, you know, sometimes it's picking up the phone and making a phone call. Sometimes it's scheduling meetings when they have those individual line of business meetings, get on the calendar so you can have, you know, 15, 20 minutes to explain what it is that you do. 
Yeah, Alan, I can't echo that even more. At Raymond James, our enterprise fraud risk management team is actually part of our anti-money laundering and our financial crimes management structure. So we kind of envelop with our colleagues in the financial intelligence unit who do that transactional review for AML and terrorist financing, as Andrew mentioned earlier. I really try to explain our role as, you know, we're the subject matter experts who work across business lines to provide not only awareness and training on potentially suspicious activity, but also to Alan's point, providing that awareness and red flag awareness to our first line. They're really our mitigating effort. In addition to that, our investigation activity to identify and mitigate that potential fraud risk to the firm itself. Our role is really important specifically to identifying trend analysis. Uh, fraud is ever-changing, so that landscape not only has seasonality associated with it, but it's identifying when those spikes may occur. You know, COVID's a great example of when we saw it first happen, and then after a while when the stimulus package came out, what those spikes in fraud risk really paramount um, to pique our interest and understand what that volatility does to ourselves here. Andrew also mentioned the cyber-related regulatory reporting um, to that collaborative engagement. It's paramount to drive success. One thing we're really trying to do with our fraud team is provide that expertise to that cyber initiative. So create that cyber fraud fusion. And I have found that um, working with our business partners that are on the same level, looking for ways to mitigate risk holistically at our firm, we're developing those partnerships that escalate to those specific leaderships. So we are getting the attention of those leadership structures and being able to explain what we do and how we add value. Um, lastly, I'll just mention that it's vitally important, our regulatory remit to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, really to safeguard the firm whenever a regulatory review is performed, um, but also ensuring that we have enterprise-wide policies that envelop all of our business units so that they understand what our role and responsibilities are, but they also understand that they have a role to play in mitigating risks to the firm. And that escalation to our team is paramount um, to us holistically working together. Thanks, Alex. And um, Alan, um, no member of my family can explain adequately what I do for a living, so I... I, I... <laughs> I hear you. Uh, so global financial institutions have multiple financial products, um, information systems, some of which may be um, a little long in the tooth, um, lines of business, uh, different customer types, uh, various regulators uh, spanning numerous geographies and, uh, and cultures, uh, all, all of which uh, they have to contend with in order to um, you know, to operate and, and then also investigate. Uh, it, it's impossible for an FIU to be a complete microcosm of the institution with all of that knowledge compressed in a, in a, uh, in a unit um, with limited headcount. So how do you deal with situations when you're dealing with one or more of these variables and you don't have the expertise within your teams? Maybe we'll start with Alex. I would say, for me, it's always been collaboration with our business partners is paramount. I do not expect our team nor myself to know it all. So having key collaborative engagements with those subject matter experts is paramount to driving that successful conclusion. The American Bankers Association advises fraud professionals to establish rapport with our law enforcement partners. I would say the same is a necessity within our own firms. You have to raise your hand and get the right people with the right level of knowledge to accomplish the objective. 
running in silos we see too often. So where you're you're more susceptible to that tunnel vision outlook. Um, it's going to cause more work later on versus having that alignment up front um, at the beginning and working in parallel. You're much more constructive and the end result is probably a better product than if you siloed in the very beginning. Yeah, I, I would agree with Alex, what Alex said. Um, and there's a couple of things I would add that we're, that we're always focused on. Um, I think when you're building your unit and your team, one of the things you look at is who you're hiring. You know, so often I get asked by people like, what are you looking for when you're doing hiring? You know, what are the backgrounds that you want? Uh, and I think there's this conception that everybody, you know, you want someone who's had some law enforcement experience and uh, things like that, which is great. But what we found is sometimes when you get individuals who come from the business, they provide a different lens completely to what you're doing. Um, because especially if they were within your organization, they know those products and services. Uh, they know the ins and outs of, of, of the daily operations of your organization. So they provide a lens um, uh, that you may not have if you just have just individuals from law enforcement. So that's one of the first things we look at. So when we're hiring to, to hopefully make sure that we have a, I would say a diverse of thought and experience within the team. Uh, the second thing is, I would say, yes, we will utilize internal resources. So if we come across certain situation, whether it's a product, a service, an operational component, we need to reach out to those lines of business in those other areas to make sure that, hey, does someone in your unit know about this? You know, um, And so we have to leverage the experience of the entire organization. And so I think that's why it's critical that you know, when you're doing your hiring and when you're looking um, you know, to do more within your group, that you look across your, your current organization just to see who has that expertise that can contribute to the investigations and the things that you're doing. Um, lastly, I would say, you know, we'll go external. You know, sometimes we will go outside just to figure out, okay, this is something where that expertise, it may not reside within right now. But let's go outside. Let's find out what's going on in the industry. Let's find out what our peer groups are doing. Um, and let's leverage that experience and those relationships just to see what's going on. And then from there, we'll build upon that. Um, we'll say, okay, we need to develop, make sure we're developing an expertise. And then that goes back to some of our hiring practices. So there's a number of things that we will do uh, to make sure that we can address that, um, that issue or that potential opportunity or gap that we might have. Oh, thanks, oh, Alan. Um, so, Andrew, um, you've worked on a number of monitorships of global banks and other financial institutions related to money laundering, uh, fraud, and, and sanctions violations. Uh, how important is it for the monitoring team to have a working relationship with the FIUs, and, and how would you describe the ideal working relationship? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, I'll just a quick reaction to what um, Alan and Alex just said uh, related to this. I think there's a, you know, a direct correlation um, to to our role at times, whether it be, you know, appointed as a monitor or actually, you know, hired in support of an FIU. There's a direct correlation to the FIU's ability and, and strength of its relationship with its business partners and also with law enforcement. So the, the, better, the better they have that relationship, the more often our involvement becomes um, much more supportive and much less on the remediation side. So I think it's an important point. Um, the other thing is, you know, we just, we, we just talked about what a SAR is. Um, and I think it's really important to note that um, 
there's a very limited number of people in a financial institution that have access to and knowledge of SARS. And it's most typically the responsibility of the FIU to identify um, and investigate suspicious activity, make decisions about it, and prepare the information and documentation to file the SAR. So it's really safe to say that in a case where FTI is brought in to either support an internal investigation by the institution or is, import, is appointed as an independent party to oversee program enhancements uh, without a strong re working relationship with the FIU would be entirely ineffective. Um, another, another important aspect that also touches on what Alex and Alan were saying is, um, you know, they're incredible in, uh, sources of information. Um, from my perspective, an FIU often has a holistic view of an institution's products, services, you know, systems, internal controls, the culture of compliance, um, and also an understanding of uh, law enforcement and regulatory trends regarding financial crimes. And so it's, and so as far as, you know, an ideal working relationship for us, Alan used the word communication and Alex used the word collaboration um, in answering the last questions. Um, you know, I, I, echoing that there really needs to be as much transparency and, um, you know, on both sides as possible. And while, you know, we are brought in often as um, referred to as experts in the field and are entrusted by, you know, senior management, the board, or the regulators or enforcement bodies themselves, the, the expertise and the institutional knowledge we need to do our jobs rests uh, in the FIU for sure. So in some ways, as an outside consultant, we have a job, we have a job to do of showing the FIU one, you know, that we can add value to the process and have something to offer. And two, keeping in mind that they have a critical job of feeding information um, out to the government about criminal activity. We have to do that and discharge um, our responsibilities uh, without disrupting their hugely important role. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Andrew. So um, FIU's uh, anti-money laundering and sanctions units are increasingly reliant on enabling technologies uh, to flag anomalous transactions, block transactions with uh, specially designated nationals, identify um, you know, customers or counted parties that might be politically exposed persons or government owned companies, and as well as document and track investigations. So um, you know, more and more FIUs are heavily reliant on uh, enabling technologies. And in fact, um, they, you know, they've long been on the leading edge of that kind of reliance on, on technology. What um, would you guys say is the most important enabling technology in use at your institution and, and why is that? Maybe we'll start with Alan. So, sorry, just battling with my mute button. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if there's one particular technology that I would put out there. Um, there's a couple of categories that I'll, that I'll put out. So at first, I think it's extremely important that um, your internal systems that you have, um, whether it's um, where you go and retrieve customer data, um, I think having the ability uh, to do that is going to be key. Um, you know, it, it's going to allow you to see, you know, existing customers and those customer transactions um, that are taking place. So you, you need to be able to have good systems uh, in order to do that. 
Um, I know through the financial, you know, industry, there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, merges taking place and there's systems and some things aren't sunsetted. Some things are just added and it adds to complexity. But I think for the investigators um, looking at fraud and, and AML and other uh, types of things, the ability to access your own systems uh, is key. You know, something that I constantly hear from our investigators all the time is, you know, sometimes they have multiple logins. Um, so if you can, uh, if you can ease, you know, um, you know, uh, the number of systems that they that need to be logged in, but it's going to be key. It's got to be key that you be able to access those that that information that you already have, you know, in house um, um, with that customer information. I think the second thing that I would say is, is key is be quite honest is the internet. You need to be able to have good access to the internet. Now, there's going to be certain controls that are out there that you're going to have, you know, because there's certain things that you can't get access to, you shouldn't get access to based on your company's, you know, tolerance for that. But for investigators, being able to access the internet is going to be key because it's just going to help with answering some questions that you're going to have in the investigation, such as an address or such as a connection to uh, another, you know, possible um, perpetrator or fraud or, or money laundering. So you need to be able to do that. Um, so that that piece of technology is important. And then there's the evolution of what's taking place right now over the last couple of years where people have talked about the use of, uh, of bots, the use of machine learning uh, to assist with you being more effective and more efficient uh, with the work and addressing, you know, the true, you know, the, the false positives because, you know, once you start doing some searches, a number of things come up. So I would say those technologies um, are all important, I think, for um, investigations. And then you have the cybersecurity things that are taking place. Um, you know, we, we've created a fusion center um, at TD, um, and that fusion center does a great deal of work uh, with our fraud operations group, uh, with our anti-money laundering group, because they have a number of different technologies that they're utilizing, like I mentioned, with machine learning, uh, also with bots, and then also some of the things that they're doing from a data analytics perspective. So um, I, I wouldn't say it's just one. I would say there's a number of uh, different technologies that are very crucial, I think, to a uh, uh, to an investigative unit. I would, I would definitely tend to agree with you, Alan. Uh, mm -hmm. The dream for me is really to have a one-stop wonder. I know I'm constantly throwing out challenges to our IT team with my birthday wish list. Um, I want a one-source wonder, like all of my investigators can go to one database and all the source systems are integrated in there and all the data management is in there and we want to send things to other teams to do, like one day that dream will come true. I think it'll run overload though. Um, some of the things uh, Alan mentioned, I'm going to echo, uh, change management, screening tools, and automation. Those are my three big components, you know. With screening tools, it's really about, you know, some of the efficiency gains in incorporating things like that OFAC list and, and incorporating that into our client onboarding experience. So we're mitigating risk before we take on that client. Um, again, going back to um, client due diligence and enhanced due diligence, we're going to look for that change in behavior from what is expected to what they're actually performing on their account. Um, negative news, obviously, is our biggest culprit, right? They may be great when they're onboarded, but then through the years, maybe they've taken a turn in life and there's something else happening there. As the marijuana industry has grown and that initiative, you know, businesses have to look at that and we have to pay attention to what they're reporting to us on the account side that they're doing to what's actually being, you know, funneled through law enforcement and or whatever else is happening out there with their business ventures. 
I mean, I'm all for it. Everyone's got to make money. Everyone's got to do their thing. I support you. Just got to do my job too at the same time. Um, from the change management, I think, uh, especially in fraud, tuning of scenarios to keep that fluidity is, is how fraud schemes, you know, how we stay adept to fraud schemes. They're constantly evolving. And I want to say that that's one of the, the reasons why I got into law enforcement, and especially in my current role, is that constant challenge of trying to figure out what are they doing and how are they doing it and how can I get ahead versus always chasing the tail behind. And it's a challenge. And I like the mental stimulation that it gives me to have to think outside the box. And that's something that I'm constantly telling our team, think outside the box. If you were this guy or gal, how would you execute this activity? I think that's where Alan had mentioned the cyber incorporation. We're starting to build that cyber fraud fusion. And it's paramount to thinking outside the box. A lot of those individuals come with this savvy mind of, uh, from from especially military and law enforcement background, where they they're able to understand a little bit more. They do active intelligence, so they're able to look at the dark web and see what's happening already out there. But then also spawn some ideas of what could potentially happen. And I think that's really the the breaking point between that tactical addressing of something. It's happening right now to strategically saying this could happen if this continues. I could foresee this activity happening. It's, it's really not new thinking. It's just really about instead of trying to have that hustle and just deal with what's in front of you, deal with it, but also think about two steps ahead what's happening there. Lastly, automation for greater efficiency. Uh, I think Alan said it best, like we're really looking at how can we do more with less? We tax our, we tax our associates with so much manual oversight and overview that we are prone to errors because we're human beings. We get tired. We can't catch everything. But if we can put some algorithms together and put some logic together and, and have that feeder system to where we're weeding out the noise and actually dealing with the productive alerts, I think that's going to make for more robust investigations and, and really streamline our efficiencies from a technology standpoint. Oh, thanks, Alex. So, so really all you want for your birthday is that smart board that they have on NCIS, right? Listen, I'm telling you, if those guys could just come to my office and set that up, I would be like, I would give them drinks for a year, like whatever it took, but I want to make that happen. Yeah, if only. But, um, so as, as a follow-up, you know, while we're still talking about enabling technologies and their importance to, uh, to an FIU, uh, case management systems are a very important repository um, in which to document investigative and compliance activities um, and also serve as the unit's like, institutional knowledge. Uh, so large institutions sometimes have multiple case management systems that for various legitimate reasons can't be combined or share data due to things like privacy or privilege. Um, what's the workaround for the situation where there is uh, information across the institution that by design, uh, these systems aren't talking to each other and yet uh, in order to be effective, you need to be able to, to gain access. You know, I would say this is a huge challenge. I think all of us here and all, all the attendees can say that this is a huge challenge that affects all of our firms and our peer discussions that we have. It is about how do you encrypt data that no one else should see, especially as Andrew mentioned, the, the suspicious activity reporting data, like that's confidential. You were required to do that as part of our regulatory remit. 
So how can we have one system talk to another while encrypting information that is protected from their view? I know it's possible. I'm not the technically savvy girl that can make it happen, but I know there are some tech savvy people out there that can make it happen. You know, in present day, we're really reliant on open communication, transparency, and, and understanding the ability to share information and escalate relevant factors that would incorporate another team. Um, you know, we're currently looking at a way through automation and analytics to have that wider lens. It's so paramount. And I kind of go back to what I originally said earlier on about working in silos. You know, we're more apt to work in silos when we're just focused on our lens versus widening that and, and looking at, oh, we should envelop this group. You know, if we've had a data breach, well, we need to involve privacy so that they can run their tentacle so that we don't have to run them. But do you put them in at the right time? And I think part of that uh, dream for me, going back to my birthday wish, would be to have that, you know, check the box in my system that automatically sends something with the right information that privacy needs that envelops them immediately without that need to provide any more information. It automatically will include them and send them exactly what they need. Uh, I think if we're looking at ways to create greater efficiency, we have to come up with a way that we have one event, it touches multiple business units and multiple business lines, how do we get them what they need? It can be as simple in my mind, and again, not technically savvy, so all the IT people out there watching are gonna be like, girl, it's not that easy, slow your roll, I got you. But what I'm saying is that you could say, privacy needs these data points to effectuate their end deliverable. So how do we pull that out of your screen to get them that? And I have to believe there's a way to make that happen. I think some of the things that challenge us are not only resources uh, with human beings to accomplish that, but also financing those endeavors and prioritizing them uh, in a way that our board of directors understand the need and will see the gains because ultimately they need to see the gains in order to approve the funding. Yeah, I, I would just add to what Alex said. I think, um, you know, your question, Scott, was uh, really the case management and it, it's crucial. I think case management are, case management systems are, are key to um, breaking down those silos um, and allowing, you know, what Alex said, you know, that that view that investigators can come sit down and they can see everything that has taken place, whether from a fraud perspective, whether from an AML perspective, you know, if issues have come up or, you know, things investigation have taken place, how do you tie it all together? And you're right, because of, you know, privacy and, and other and, and the growth of an organization, you know, you have one system, you know, one part of the business, one and the other, and they don't communicate. Um, and it's, it'll be difficult to, to, to tie that all together. Um, I think the key takeaway for us is, is how we address it is through what I talked about before, that communication channel. So we have a number of meetings, you know, in our, uh, you know, uh, throughout the organization where um, the, the leaders of those organizations are getting together or those functions are getting together and discussing what's taking place. You know, um, I mentioned before the fusion, uh, I think, you know, um, I think with this, you know, I think everybody's going to what I'll call the financial crimes model. Uh, and I think people are still, you know, figuring that out. What does that mean? And with this, with us starting our fusion, we're actually utilizing the financial crimes fusion model to actually do that. 
you know, without case management systems, where we're bringing, you know, the different groups together, whether it's fraud, FIU, legal, privacy, compliance, you know, when we have, a, a, you know, a, a something, an investigation that's taking place that everyone is coming together and actually weighing in, it's looking at, okay, what are the work streams that we have that we need to make sure that we're, um, we're, um, uh, we're using, you know, to address this particular investigation or issue, because you're going to have day-to-day you know, investigations and things that would that take place in the normal course of business. But then you're going to have those that, you know, that are going to rise to a certain level where you need to get others involved and say, hey, you know what, this one, you know, this one here um, is going to require a little more manpower because we think there may be some exposure. Um, so you want to make sure you're bringing all those groups together. And sometimes if you don't have your case management systems are talking, that's what you need to do. You need to rely on something or the development of a fusion center or a fusion center concept and if you don't have that, you just need to have constant communications, whether you call it an AMLOC meeting, a, a fraud meeting, whatever it is, you need to get all those individuals that are doing investigations involved. Um, and I think that's the way you, you work around that, um, that issue of um, you know, different case management systems. No, thanks, Alan. So um, Andrew, in, in some of the monitorships and investigations, uh, and um, uh, remediation projects in which you've been involved. Uh, how important was it to have access to case management systems? And did you, um, you know, ever on any of those projects encounter unreported suspicious activity or other problems in your review of what was recorded in those systems? I'll say, Alex, when you were talking about, um, you know, kind of your interest in investigations and, um, you know, what, what kind of drove you to your career path, um, it reminded me of, you know, different roles I have had. It also reminded me of something I say to my children regularly, which is I'm a highly trained investigator. And so don't even try it, um, but they still do. And so I have to update my, you know, my home detection scenarios regularly. Um, and I also, you know, at, for Alan and Alex and, and, the, and the audience, um, you know, I think that you have a tough job of, of deciding what information sources you use. I mean, Alan, you said the internet, um, but I'm sure you have no short list of consultants and vendors who are constantly trying to sell you the next best service or product and um, making those decisions is, is a real challenge and, and, and sort of, so I, I sort of feel, I feel uh, your pain there a little bit as we, you know, we experience that. Um, with respect to um, case management systems, they, we're, when, we're, when we get involved with a client, I'm, we're often a little bit of an inverse as far as our first stop, that, which, which is the case management system. Um, you know, we'll collect and analyze data from dozens of sources, uh, core systems, uh, and other places. We really can't get a picture of the FIU's activity without access to that system. And in fact, as we, a few of us talked about earlier, um, for supervisory and confidentiality reasons, we often won't even have access to SARS when we're uh, when we're doing some our work. Um, so, in that sense, the case management system, coupled with our interaction with the FIU, is really our snapshot of you know what type of activity um, has occurred uh, at the institution. And I think some of the things, the biggest problems that we see um, have already been discussed, um, which is one, a, you know, oftentimes a lack of investment in the systems. Uh, and, and also um, um, the fact that there might be multiple systems that require different access points, different training. Um, and so there's just uh, more opportunity for things to go wrong. Um, we, also see, we also see issues 
um, in the way that um, data is transferred and ingested into case management systems from other places, from the customer um, repositories, from transaction systems, from other compliance systems. Uh, and, so, and so oftentimes an investigator is dealt with uh, incomplete information to conduct their investigation. Uh, there's, also, there's also the flip side of that, which is sometimes these systems don't do a good job of handling um, the different types of information. And so an analyst or investigator can be you know, overwhelmed by a flood of information loaded into the system uh, and have a hard time getting through activity in a, in a timely way, um, which can either lead to backlogs uh, and alerts, or it can also lead um, to um, sort of just clicking, you know, clicking through things quickly um, to try to get through your, your daily caseload. Um, and, and so those, those are all issues that's, that occasionally um, give rise to, to missed suspicious activity. And then finally, um, there can be failures in the QC process and the general auditability of the system. Um, and those can be from human error or technical issues, but they occur nonetheless. Um, and they can, you know, they can also create um, missed suspicious activity. Thanks, Andrew. So um, FIUs have the same suspicious activity reporting obligations as uh, AML. DSA and sanction units, as I, as I mentioned at the, at the, at the outset. Um, many FIUs submit their SARS through the AML units as opposed to submitting them directly. Uh, why is that the case? And is there a counter argument in support of the FIUs submitting them directly? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm sorry, Alan, were you going to go? No, oh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I would say that there's a streamline of efficiency that sometimes that's why there's that handoff. Um, in our team, we actually are a beginning to end consumer. So we start with the investigation and we carry it all the way through. I have found that the intuitiveness to understanding the types of fraud schemes and the ability to articulate the suspicious activity is really paramount to understanding all the different topologies that will come underneath that reporting. So sometimes with AML, it's a specific rapid movement of funds. And, and that's just the topology and the, the subsurface level of what the reporting remit is going to encompass. And so maybe that handoff from a financial intelligence unit perspective with uh, AML and terrorist finding that type of reporting, the handoff is okay. Um, I've seen I've seen it both ways. I found that in in polling my team and asking them their preference, they like to start and finish the end product because they all know all the little nuances that go along with the case, and it makes it for a more robust reporting. So that if law enforcement does want to pick up the end piece, they have all the different pieces that make up the suspicious activity that they're reporting. Um, I've seen it the other way too, where the same message gets relayed. Uh, I think it's just translated through several different people through the process as it carries forward. Yeah, I, I would add, um, I think it goes through the, um, through the AML group and, you know, it's, a, it's about um, responsibility or I guess better yet accountability, you know, because, you know, the, the SAR reporting falls under the BSA and then you have a BSA officer. So uh, that accountability rests with that BSA officer. So you'll see um, the filing actually take place, you know, that way. Um, however, I would say similar to Alex, you know, we have a process in place where, you know, if it's something that's non-AML related, 
you know, our fraud group or global security investigation, they will do that investigation. Um, they'll do it from beginning to end, you know, so narrative and, and all. Um, but the filing will go through, you know, through AML uh, for the actual filing of it. Now, you know, uh, to Alex's point, I think this allows us to make sure that when we're looking at, you know, um, fraud or non-AML type of SARS, you know, you're looking at the consistency in the narrative um, and the information that's being provided and the way the investigation is conducted. So um, from a um, from an accountability perspective, it'll go through AML and the, and the BSA officer. Uh, but as far as like the investigation itself um, and the actual completion of the SAR, you know, it'll be done by that uh, that by that by that particular group. In this instance, our global security investigations fraud team. Thanks, Alan. So, Andrew, financial institutions receive thousands of subpoenas a year through their legal and subpoena compliance units. You know, many of these subpoenas are, are kind of routine nature, may have to do with uh, civil litigation or, or garnishments and things of that nature. However, some are from law enforcement agencies at the local, state, and federal level. So when serving as a monitor, what are your expectations as to how well integrated subpoena compliances with the FIU's AML BSA and sanctioned units and, and what happens could happen if they're not working in a coordinated manner. So Scott, I mean, this, this is a pretty complex question and I think the answer can go in a lot of different directions. I think the base is what uh, Alan and Alex have been talking about is having things discussed at a committee level, uh, making sure that there's a positive and adequate communication uh, between those receiving and, and, and managing uh, subpoenas and other demand letters and also whether they ultimately turn into, you know, some sort of investigative process by the institution. From my perspective, I think the key is that there has to be a balance between, you know, responding with the data required and any subsequent investigation by an FIU or another, or another department, you know, which is prompted by such a demand. There are times that we've seen where an institution can be subject to such a volume of demands that they tend to lose control over their investigative process and are sort of reacting to these inquiries. And those are sometimes extreme examples, but the regulators and law enforcement agencies in particular sometimes ask for very broad analyses to be done and aren't always aware of how complicated and encompassing you know, such inquiries would be. I've seen things where they ask, you know, one global financial institution for all transaction activity related to another global financial institution over a seven-year period across every affiliate, subsidiary, and branch, you know, that can kind of stop the presses, as they say, at an institution. As a monitor, though, we are often asked to assess compliance in that area. Uh, and then as a, as a consultant to the institutions, we're asked to help support uh, understanding the flow of information and understanding the right process and controls that are in place. And then there's just times generally where we're asked to help support that specific request. And I think this goes to uh, something that uh, Alan and Alex were referencing before, just about the ability to sort of scale up and scale down as needed, having internal and possibly external resources so that when there's a, a large demand on resources uh, in a particular department, you know, they're able to handle that request. They're able to scale up and get through that without disrupting business as usual. No, thanks, Andrew. So FIUs, some of them have pretty broad units and they investigate customers, counterparties, vendors, and insiders. Uh, how do investigations of insiders differ from those of customers or third parties? Maybe we'll start with Alan. 
Yeah, when you when you start talking about insider investigations, you really have to look at what you're doing from a, a legal perspective. You have to look at the privacy implications to it as well, because depending on what you're investigating, does it trigger a privacy event that has to get reported to the jurisdictional regulators? So you have to look at that, you know, your compliance, it brings in a number of, I would say, other functions when you're looking at those types of investigations. You have to make sure that it's coordinated. You know, who's leading the investigation? Sometimes you have to look at it, you know, does it go under privilege? you know, depending on, depending on what's taking place, you know, the investigations that you would normally do relating to whatever's coming out of your, your sanction screening or your transaction monitoring system, those day-to-day, you know, those are investigations are going to take place. But when you start talking about the, um, the realm of insiders, it, 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 it's a different lens and all those things have to be considered, start to do that investigation. Again, it has to be well-coordinated who's taking the lead, those groups, again, they have to be, you know, brought into it. And then, you know, what do you, what what do you do? How do you do the, you know, the actual interviews? And then what's the report out, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, how are you going to be reporting this incident, you know, filing a suspicious activity report on it and everything. So there's a lot that goes into when you start talking about, you know, insider investigations, and it needs to be extremely well documented in what you're doing. I would say those are different things that actually go into it. And probably for me, the biggest thing is, you know, whether you're going to look at you know, is it, does it create a privacy event? And also, are you going to be looking at putting this, you know, under privilege or not? Yeah, I would definitely agree with what Alan said. For us, this is a heightened investigation and becomes a priority. You know, first, obviously, because it's internal, it's inside. Second, it's a determination of how deep is the misconduct and who was actually affected. So it's a broad scope because you only are on the tip of what you know. You don't know what you don't know at this point. One of the things to Alan's point is really having that collaborative engagement. So we have an insider threat working group. Uh, it keeps our communication channels in line to all the relevant parties. We have specified roles and responsibilities. There is an already a core structure of alignment to set up so that we can collectively run with the roles and responsibilities. And, you know, to Alan's point, privilege is a huge component of this. Legal, if they're doing the interviews with this insider person, some of that may fall under privilege. You know, for our side of the house, we have licensed issues. So we have licensed entities that they could also lose licensure with the regulator for any activity that's been filed. So it's coordinating with our supervision and compliance on any U4 or U5 filings with, with the entity as well. In our team, not because we've had so many, but because we recognize the need for subject matter expertise, we've designated complex investigators. And those individuals have a very skilled set of understanding and education and experience, quite honestly, to not only liaison with other departments, but to understand the sensitivity and complexity of these types of investigations while ensuring that we're continuing to meet all of our service level agreements in case progression and regulatory remits should we have to file anything with the regulator. Just want to go back again, talk about collaboration. It's, it's key and it's paramount. And I know we've said this throughout this entire conversation, so I hope that's the one takeaway you at least take away from this. Level setting rules and responsibility creates that transparency and workflow and also the continuity of how the investigation will flow. Um, working hand in hand with our corporate security and our legal teams, we are ensuring that we have the right approach and we all are approaching it from what we're expected to do. And, and just to echo what Alan said, the documentation and what you present forward 
to have that business continuity holistically across all business lines when you are all working is really why we created that insider threat working group so that we could have that cohesiveness uh, in unison traveling. Thanks, Alex. So we've already touched on the valid reasons why there may, out of necessity, be multiple case management systems that are walled off from each other. And Alan, you, you made reference to fusion centers. Can you maybe just elaborate a little bit on the purpose of a fusion center and how that fits into strategies that both institutions have employed to make sure that you're working in close coordination across with your counterparts in BSA, AML, sanctions, cyber, legal, the various constituencies within the institution that may have an investigative remit. Yeah, I would say our fusion center and probably like everybody else where, you know, you're being developed and growing and and, and it's something that's ever changing. But, you know, it, it was built to be that source that can do a number of things. You know, first their access, social media, the, the dark web and their ability to do, you know, data and analytics and then just that invest overall investigative intelligence component that it brings. It was, you know, purposely there to break down those silos because I think that's something that's been happening and being addressed in the industry over the le- you know, for years, but over the last few years, we're, you know, breaking down those silos. And what's the best way to break down that silo? And if everyone can come together, you know, under this fusion center concept and really start having, you know, investigators, you know, I would say technology people legal analysts and everyone together, uh, working together, you know, to address those major issues that come up and then disseminating that information out to the organization because they also can serve as a source of information because there's certain things that you want to get out to your organization. If there's a, a major issue or a major fraud taking place, like everything that's taking place with, you know, the governmental relief programs. Well, you know what, that, you know, instead of AML sending something out, instead of fraud sending something out, Legal, you know, if you have something that the fusion center comes together collectively, you know, they put all that information together and they send out one communication, you know, therefore, you know, the executives, everybody's not getting, you know, some information from this group, some information from that group, they're getting one report uh, that basically summarizes everything that's taking place. So, you know, the Fusion Center, we call it called Enterprise Protect, you know, they're going to be that source of that information of where everything starts coming together and then looking at items holistically rather than in silos. And even then, you still may look at it as a silo, but how do you bring it together um, and into that, that holistic framework, you know, for a big picture um, uh, assessment and a way to address an issue rather than in little pieces and then try to tie it together later. Yeah, I'll just piggyback off of Alan and, um, you know, have a process in place, have a, have a core group that's going to lead it forward, uh, engaging everybody. For us, we have weekly meetings. Uh, I know Alan and Andrew both mentioned that, and, and, and it's constant. Like sometimes you can feel like you're jumping from meeting to meeting to meeting, but if they're benefiting and you can find a a more concision way of having one meeting that envelops all the different business units and you have one topic of conversation that you're bringing forward, that's a more cohesive message, especially to the board of directors and executive leadership where they're like, everybody is doing this in our firm. Everybody's working together. That collaboration component is working and we need to support them. Thanks, Alex. So we're approaching the top of the hour. but there's one more question I think it's important. Um, uh, it's hard for anyone to have a conversation with me where I don't manage to work the 
hallmarks in an effective compliance program into it. Um, and one of the hallmarks is commitment from senior management and a clearly articulated policy. Uh, how then does the FIU ensure that it has the full support of senior management and what are some mechanisms to ensure that the leadership team receives regular briefings and more importantly is committed to its success? So I go back to open communication and transparency with a plan of action and a defined roadmap that clearly outlines expectations and objectives that will be mapped out over a specified period of time. That will allow you to have those quarterly or monthly updates to the board to provide them transparency in your progression, as well as keep it fresh in their minds as you continue to progress through whatever those end deliverables are. Uh, I think also meeting with business unit risk managers over the respective business lines and product lines enable them to carry that message forward. So they're not only hearing it once from you, either monthly or quarterly, they're also hearing it through different mechanisms that actually represent the businesses and products. Um, for me, it's really about understanding what are their top concerns and how can I map our needs and what we're doing and our mission to those needs because you have to have buy-in they have to be interested in what you're doing. And if they're not, you have to figure out a way to get them interested to show whether it's a high risk or high exposure to firm losses, either financially or through clients. Yeah, I would, I would, I agree with Alex and, and I would uh, add to it that it's a, it's a two way communication. So, you know, we have regular reporting and updates that we provide, you know, um, our board and whether it's the risk committee of the board or the audit committee of the board, um and they're again they're regular meetings you know based throughout the year uh, and at that time that means you're providing them an update of what the program is what it looks like um everything that's good and whatever issues that you may have um so that you know for for their role that they have they can provide that effective challenge to you about the program uh, not only what you're presenting but also what they're hearing what's going on in the industry because you know they watch the news and they see the newspaper clippings and things like that. And they'll always ask that question, you know, can that happen here? Or what do we have in place that that can't happen here? So you need to make sure that you're addressing the questions, concerns they have, as well as, you know, presenting to them, you know, what the program is doing and what you're trying to accomplish and how it aligns with the overall strategy of your organization. Um, the second part of the communication is taking that information back and making sure that your team knows it. You know that your team knows what you're first, what you're letting them know about, and then the questions that uh, that you're getting back from from the board. I think it's important that they know, and I think you know through regular we have quarterly town halls in which you know we tell the group like, okay, hey, we presented to the board, and this is some of the questions they had. Listen, they said tremendous job, keep it up, and I think uh, I think the teams need to hear that. So it's a two way communication in which a you need to make sure that you're informing the board of what you're doing, but then b you need to make sure that you're also informing your team of what the expectations that the board has, and then also when they're letting when they feel like you're doing a good job and and to continue on that path because you know you you need to have that. That's all the time we have today. You guys have shared some great insights today, and we really appreciate everyone's time. Thank you much for your time today. That was Alex Cigarro from Raymond James, Alan Love from TD Bank, and Andrew Rossini from FTI Consulting. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment. And stay tuned for next week's episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea for a fraud or corruption case topic or guest you'd like to hear from on a future episode, 
email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thank you for listening.